Good morning. Greet you in Jesus' name. Welcome. There again, uh, California having those meetings, I told them it don't really seem for me to stand up in the evening and welcome people to the service because I'm the visitor probably as much as anyone there. And it sort of feels funny to come home and welcome you, and you've probably maybe been here since I have, but anyways, it's good to be with you however you want to split that. Um, blessings to you this morning. Um, different of you have asked how our week went. I think it went well. I always hesitate to rate something that I'm so actively involved in because for fear of somebody else sitting there might have rated it differently, and what if they just barely survived? So... Uh, I was pretty tired, I can tell you that, and I really do appreciate your prayers and encouragement. I'll tell you what, um, I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek because I don't want to, uh, anybody uh, to feel whatever. At the same time, you really find out who your friends are when you have a week of meetings because some text you and some don't. And it's sort of funny who does and who doesn't sometimes. So anyway, for those of you that did, God bless you. And, I, and those of you that didn't, I love you too. Uh, and... Uh, Maybe next time you can see. But it's, it does definitely help me. Um, another thing I was going to say is uh, the message is one this morning, maybe a little bit more on that. It's not really one I want to preach at all. And if you decide to get rid of me, I guess, after I get done, I have at least the comfort of knowing there's one old, older gentleman that came to church. Almost every service out there, he told me he really wished I'd live in California. I didn't really tell him I didn't share his wish at the moment, but uh, I, it was very kind of him, so uh, we'll take it in that way. Uh, so I guess at least I know where I can go if I need somebody to love me. Um, another thing you can pray for, not just me, is my wife. She started not feeling real well yesterday, and I think she'll be all right, but sort of too bad. We're looking forward to being here as a complete family, but so goes. Okay, actually... I thought it was funny, uh, I'm going to tell a little bit, in our last minister's meeting, we sat there and argued about who preaches this Sunday for it seemed like a long time, and they just finally told me I had to submit and not, I was, I, it was my turn, they told me I couldn't, so I thought, well, I'd bide my time and uh, just wait a couple weeks to see if they'd let me then, and sure enough, the one that was supposed to told me it was, yeah, just go ahead when I asked him if I could, and here he had other plans come up yet, so I guess God knew what, uh, had that all figured out, but I thought it was sort of humorous and I can't help telling them I told you so just a little bit um, so I'm not sure how to break into this subject who can tell me what major historical event happened in 1492 anybody know what happened in 1492 yeah, Columbus sailed and he discovered some islands he thought he was in India uh, he wasn't quite there uh, so what did, I wanted to ask a question I want you to think about is what did Columbus have that many people in his day did not have? Um, and I'm talking about a per, something personal, not, not his ships or anything like that. Those were given to him. So think about that for a minute. What did uh, Columbus have that the other people, uh, something personal that Columbus had that at least quite a few other people in his day didn't have? I'm going to go on and tell you a little bit of Mennonite history. Uh, I won't be too long, so don't go to sleep on me if history ain't your thing. Um, but in the 1950s, 60s, and even into the 70s, uh, I don't know how familiar you are, but y'all probably have always heard the term of the General Conference Mennonite Church. Um, so back in the 50s, 60s, uh, that used to be the, the main organization of Mennonites. Uh, 
Now there's been a lot of branch and offshoots and there was some back in the day to be fair. But that would have been the main church that a lot of our parents, grandparents would have come out of or churches that our parents and grandparents joined when they came out of, of uh, the Amish or other things. So during the 19, yeah, from the 1940s on, they had a stand against television, but especially the Lancaster, what they called Lancaster Conference. It doesn't mean that all the churches were in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, but a lot of them were. But especially Lancaster Conference was sort of known in general conference to be extra conservative, uh, to hold the things a little bit better. And one of the rules that Lancaster Conference held up, I should have looked up and I didn't take the time, but I think it was into the early 70s, they would have had a stand against television which is sort of interesting if you know anything about what was going on in the 60s and 70s, even in the general Mennonite church was, so if you would have wanted to move to a Lancaster Conference Mennonite church and you would have asked them, where do you draw the line and stuff, the preachers would have told you they didn't have television. Now, here's what happened, is if you would have visited the home and you would have got to know these people, up to around 75% of them had TV in their basement or attic or someplace where it wasn't easily noticeable. So here's another question I want to add to the Christopher Columbus one. What was lacking in those people? What was lacking in those church members? So some time ago, I had someone I love very much, and no, they're not here this morning, so don't try to figure out who it was, told me that um, they wish preachers would just clip, uh, skip the disclaimers when they preach and just get on with their message. And I sort of smiled to myself because I know this person well enough to have heard them grumble sometimes rather heatedly about something they heard over the pulpit. And so if a preacher makes this disclaimer, sometimes it's because he knows that that happens. And so I don't want to put a whole bunch of disclaimers here for you, but I'm just going to invite your input, especially in the sharing time. Um, it's one of these, it's a message I really wish someone else was preaching, honestly. And yet, it seemed, as far as I could tell, what God had for me. And I realized that part of my reason for dreading sharing this is fear. Not necessarily a problem with you, but just fear. Fear that I wouldn't say things clearly. Fear I wouldn't be understood. Fear I'd come across as thinking I have got this together, and friends, I don't. Or maybe, yes, also a fear for not being appreciated for what I say, because I don't know. I think I told you a little bit last week was sort of rough. I don't know. Some of it's just low on sleep. But does seem sometimes sharing for a week in another setting can be pretty draining. Nothing, no problem with them. So I would ask for your correction, your prayers, and your engagement. Um, let's see if I have a marker. If something I say doesn't make sense or you disagree, I would actually invite you to tell me. Don't just sit on it. Invite me out for lunch. I'll pay for it. Uh, I invite Debbie and I out. If you're sitting on this side, we'll, we'll listen to you. Uh, I want to hear what you have to say, but I'm going to challenge you, and I'm going to get painfully practical, including to myself. And again, I can't And If you have some encouragement, feel free to pass it on because I definitely feel like I can use it. Okay. So I gave you two questions about Christopher Columbus. What did he have that most people, what personal thing did he have that most people in his day didn't? What was wrong with the members in Lancaster Conference? Now, two other questions. Can you have everything this world offers and be a Christian? So can you collect, and that goes maybe back to a message I preached some weeks ago on accumulation, but can you 
have everything this world offers and be a Christian. And I'm not really talking bad things, just things. On top of that one, can you do everything that is not absolute sin and still be right with Christ? I have some parallel verses throughout the Bible. I put them in order. So let's open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I've got five of these I want you to turn to, and then I'll share what I have to think, my thoughts. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 through 13. I do not want it, how can I say, I do not want making, to make it sound complicated to serve God. At the same time, I think it's something that deserves thought. Let's stand for uh, while we read through these five passages. So please stand. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command thee this day. I'd like to point something out is... Um, why does he say the same thing in so many ways? And now, not just Israel, God's people. What does God really require of you? But to fear, and that means to respect God. To walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day. I don't know if you caught it, and I'm not going to break it all down for you, but he repeats almost every thought at least twice in there. It's, and uh, like I think I said this here before, in the Bible, rather than bold facing something or underlining it, when, they re when God really wants to make a point in his word, it's by repetition, right? So notice the repetition there. Let's keep going. A parallel, uh, somewhat parallel scripture, Micah 6 verse 8. Maybe you all know that one by memory. You should if you don't. I'm not, I should really read more verses, but we'll try to keep it to this. Micah 6 verse 8. He hath showed thee, God, hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. A question, and I'm not really going to help you with this one. Why does he break it down those three ways? What's the point in sort of almost a repetition, but little different angles? What's he saying? The next one, Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, very Similar, in fact, some of this was a, a repeat from Deuteronomy. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, we have this man coming to Christ. And he says, Master, we would say teacher. Okay, Matthew 22, 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? That's a pretty good question to ask a wise teacher, isn't it? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Excuse me, I think I said that wrong. This is actually a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, not 10. So you can go check up on me there but again notice the repetition thou shalt love the lord thy god would that be enough you're to love the lord thy god or he could say thou shalt love the lord thy god with all thy heart if i love god with all my heart what need is there to tell me to do it with all my soul why why then not stop with that but add with all thy mind 
And I'd like to maybe especially emphasize the mind in that I think we have to be thoughtful. And you know that about me, maybe, and maybe that's what you hate about me already is I'm always browbeating you to think. But I think we've got to be thoughtful about serving God. Okay, uh, got two to go yet here, don't we? First uh, Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. Paul writing to Timothy, he calls him his son in an earlier verse. It's always been easy for me to put myself in Timothy's shoes a bit, so I, I, these verses are probably extra special to me in that light. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, he tells Timothy, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister or create questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. Now, the end or the fullness of the commandment is charity or love out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. And there again, I find it fascinating. He says the end or the fulfillment of the commandment, what God really wants from me, what he really wants from you, is love out of a pure heart. But there again, he doesn't stop. I'd say, well, that's plenty. Because I find that a challenge all by itself. But he says a good conscience and of faith unfeigned or a faith that's real. Okay, now, last one, James chapter 1, verse 25 through 27. James chapter 1, 25 through 27. He's comparing God's word to looking into a mirror, we would call it, a looking glass, seeing our reflection. James 1, 25. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, talking about God's word, and continueth therein, he be not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. It's the person who does, not the person who just looks. If any a man among you seems to be religious or seems to be godly and bridleth not his tongue, he decides. I don't think he's, I think the principle he's talking about, I'll talk about that in a minute, is not just speech. Is it? It's saying whenever you claim to be something, but your life doesn't back it up. A little bit what Brian said, that's a real challenge, isn't it? When you're working with someone that's not really a Christian. Because they pick up pretty quick where those, where fake starts. That, that religion's vain, whether it's in my speech or whether it's in some other action. Last verse, 27. Pure religion, or real religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You may be seated. I guess that's where I would like to suggest to you that staying unspotted from the world takes more than a casual walk with God. It takes an everyday intent. So lest you think I'm preaching law and legalism, let me ask you this. Does love for someone change how you live your life? I think it does. If I love my wife, it changes a bit how I live my life. And I need to remember that whether I've been married a couple years or whether it's some of you that are just starting out on that. Uh, got to change a bit. And maybe for some of you that have been living a while by yourself, you're, you're finding out. And that's great. Uh, it's, it's sort of a good thing but yet love if you really love someone it changes your life of course it does let's say it this way you cannot appreciate love be grateful for love and return love without being changed by love can you 
if my wife's love, just to use that illustration, wouldn't change me at all, I would not be appreciative of it. I don't know, that's basically the same way to children. If I really love my children, it means that I think about some things differently. I'll do some things differently than if it was just Joe looking out for himself. And I know that's earthly relationships, but I think there's a real parallel in the Christian life. And I think many Christians today are failing to understand this basic truth of love. I want to be very clear. I'm not promoting having a to-do list today where we try to check out and perform so that God can love us. That's not what I'm saying. At the same time, I feel very strongly, and I think the Bible teaches very strongly, that if I love God, that love leads to actions and things in my life. Things I do and things I don't do because I love him. Just like it does if I love my wife. A love that does not have a life-altering, mind-changing, action-channeling effect is not an understood and reciprocated or returned love. You can listen to this or you're welcome to turn to it if you're still in James. James chapter 2 verse 1, excuse me, James chapter 2 verse 14 through 20. Now I understand he's talking about faith, but I think in this context, faith and love are, you can't separate them really. We could put, use one word or the other. James chapter 2 verse 14. What doth it profit my brethren or my sisters? Though a man or a woman say they have faith and have not works, can faith save you? Save him, her. So he uses an illustration just like I did. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, needing things just to stay alive, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful for the body, what doth it profit? If I stand up here Sunday morning and I tell you I love you, but the rest of the week I don't have time for you or whatever you're struggling with, do I really love you? I think we know the answer down in our hearts, don't we? Even so faith, even so love, if it hath not works, doesn't have actions, is dead. Being alone, it's just an action. Yeah, a man may say thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. Do you ever think how impossible it would be to prove your faith without works? You can't. I mean, I don't know how. You can talk to your blue in the face, but at the end of the day, you just talked. It's the way you live that really means something. And don't you think that, I mean, it's the same way. It's great to tell your wife, your children, you love them. If at the end of the day, though, my actions say something else, it doesn't mean much, does it? It becomes a lot of hot air. Notice what he says. I think it's verse 19. I don't have it split up in verses here. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils believe and tremble. So you can say all day long that you believe in God. You can say all day long you want to serve God. But unless... That love, the love of God that he's given to you, changes you, makes you want to live for God. You're a faker. Even a devil can do that. But wilt thou know, O vain man or foolish person, we would say, that faith, or I'm going to also say love, without works is dead. If we were to go to Matthew chapter 25, it's pretty easy to see 
that on the one hand, we're judged by whether we accept God's offer of love. And yet, in Matthew 25, it also makes it very clear that the way that God, how God tells us whether we loved him or not is by our actions. Now, isn't that strange? So we're judged based on what God, on having accepted Christ's love for us. At least this description, you're welcome to inform me better. Yet at the same time, God tells us whether we loved him or not by how we've lived our life, by our actions. Okay, uh, back to Christopher Columbus. Does anybody want to tell me what he had, in, what personal thing he had in his day that most other people, a lot of other people in that time did? I'm sorry? Vision, okay. Definitely had some of that, so thank you. I was also looking for another word, and this sort of gave him his vision, maybe if you will. A belief in something? I'm sorry, there's another one. <laughs> Good, thank you all. Thank you very much for your help. Uh, oh, let's see here. We're going to call this, I don't know, I don't know where I need this, okay. I call this conviction. He had a conviction. Uh, there are still people in his day arguing that the world was flat, that the, the earth orbited the sun. No, excuse me, other way around. That the sun orbited the earth. And evidently you don't get in three fairly small ships really by what we think of as boats today and head out across the Atlantic Ocean and expect a good result if you don't believe that the earth is round, do you? Uh, he had a conviction. Now, interesting thing about Christopher Columbus that I'll tell you as well, is he also had some mis... We, he was right, wasn't he? He didn't fall off the edge. He was wrong in that the, the world was much bigger than Christopher Columbus thought. And uh, so when he thought he got to India, he wasn't even halfway there yet. Uh, and so he had sort of misjudged. So we could say some of his convictions were correct and some of his convictions were a bit misplaced. So now you probably, I don't really have to ask you what the members, what a large percentage of the members in Lancaster Conference Mennonite Church were missing back in the 1960s and 70s, do I? I think they were missing conviction, weren't they? The church was saying they did one thing and they did something else. They lacked conviction. Uh, so I'm going to call this message the state of convictions and I do want an S on here plural because conviction we generally use in a different way even though it has interchangeable meanings um, the state of convictions you know most well I don't know if all countries do this I know the United States president once a year I think it's usually towards February if my memory is correct he has a, what he calls a state of the union where he goes up and talks big about the country and his plans and goals and Anyway, we'll let that with them. That's politics. Uh, most governors do it too. I know Arkansas has a state, a state of the state address. And you know, that's all good and fine. That's their job. But I'd like for you to think of the state of convictions in your heart. I was gonna say the church, but I thought thinking, anyway, you understand why I said your heart after a bit here. 
So conviction, if you go to Miriam's Webster, they don't really give you good. They're supposed to be the dictionary, I thought not. Anyway, they'd say a strong belief, which, okay, that takes us part of the way there. But there's more to it than that. Here's, in looking at scripture, I know the Bible doesn't usually use the word, but here's what I think a conviction is or should be. A strong, settled belief based on truth that leads to conformity of life and action. I wish I had room to write that all up for you, but I guess I won't take the time. I'll just reread it. Conviction. A strong, settled belief based on truth that leads to conformity of life and action. Let's just go back to Christopher Columbus for an illustration here. Is if he didn't have a strong, settled belief and accepted as truth that the world was round, he wouldn't have, like I said, he'd been stupid to do what he did. But because he had that conviction, it made logical sense to him to take the, do what he did. And to some extent, he was successful. And like I pointed out, he was human. It wasn't quite all, didn't have it all together. So a conviction is the direct result of that which I believe, that which I trust, and that which I have faith in. And so it's interesting to me, if you look at the first part of this word, convict, if you have a noun if you use the verb form of that word, what does it mean? A convict, to con convict someone. What does that mean? It means to say you're guilty, right? Just keep it simple. You're guilty. So if they're convicted of a crime, you're guilty of it. Uh, and the Bible tells us God's word convicts us of truth. Uh, so that's what the Bible's job is to convict. And then the, if we use it as a noun, who knows what a convict is? That's easy. It's a person who's been convicted, right? And so just to keep playing with words, I'll quit this in just a minute. Did you know that the purpose of convictions should be to keep you from being convicted of wrong? Right? Is that a simple way to break it down? The purpose of convictions in the heart of a Christian should be to keep us from needing to be convicted of wrongdoing. Because if I accept something as truth and I live according to it, then I don't need to be convicted because I've lived it. Now, if I'm not living truth, then I have a dire need of being convicted because I'm a convict, really. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of wrongdoing. Okay, so enough with that. I would like to maybe just briefly, I don't have a lot of time this, but break down between personal convictions and group convictions. And this is, gets tricky. Back to Lancaster Conference issue. They supposedly had a group conviction against television. It was a church stand. It was not one person saying that, right? So that was a group conviction. At the same time, a, a majority of them did not have a personal conviction on it with the result that because they also did not have a personal conviction for honesty and respect of the church like they should have had, it meant that their group conviction was actually a falsehood. Did you follow me through that? So they said on the group level that we believe this. On the personal level, 70, 75% would have told you if they would have been your close friend that they didn't believe it. They didn't agree with it. And since those same people, at least some of them, I'm not going to say all of them, were not really honest. Right? They were saying one thing and doing another. And, uh, and not just that, they also did not have a conviction for respecting the church, which led them to do what they wanted to do they ended up creating a falsehood out of their group conviction. Let's just say it this way. 
While group conviction can be a blessing, and I hope I'm part of a group that has some group convictions, if our group convictions do not begin with and are not rooted in personal conviction, convictions, it won't take us long at all to end up at the same place. Do you agree with me there? We can pretend all day long, whatever we want to. But unless the things we stand for really start in my own heart, and I do have some clarifiers. I understand maybe that we probably don't go to a church where we 100% agree with everything. And I would encourage you not to. And I don't know if I have time to explain that all to you, but we'll do what we can. So let's break this down. I've been talking about truth. And I'll look like I'm in a good marker territory. I'm going to have to buy myself some new ones. Uh, see how this blue one does. There we go. So we have truth. And I'm going to put God's word underneath it. Uh, God's word is truth. Uh, what's that? Ah, I looked that reference up. It's not in my mind here. Let's see what my notes tell me. Uh, John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth, Christ praying. Thy word is truth. So God's word is truth. Now there is perhaps some things, there's also truth, can I say outside of God's word? And I don't mean that, I hope you follow me there. When I'm saying, I'm not saying that God's word isn't true, but I can't find a verse in the Bible that tells you that an overuse of the chemical DDT causes cancer. You know any verse in the Bible that tells you that? I was initially going to tell you I couldn't find a, there's no verse in the Bible that tells you if you mix soda and vinegar it causes a bad thing but there was actually one I got to thinking there in Proverbs it says uh, he that comes and sings song to a sorrowing person is like vinegar upon nitre which is basically baking soda so there you go so the Bible does touch a lot of these things I don't know that it mentions DDT at least in that word so the Bible gives us a lot of things that include truth but I don't know like I said so there's truth and uh there again, I've heard people argue that the earth is flat and all that in the Bible. To me, it says something else, but either way, there's things that, there's facts. I don't know if you go anywhere in the Bible and it tells you one plus one is two, right? You know a verse like that? It gives us maybe the concepts, but it's not necessarily there in those words. So, you understand where I'm coming from. So I want to definitely, truth includes all God's word, but there's some aspects of truth, things that are true that aren't necessarily spelled out in scripture. So in what in in the things now that God's word gives us, we have I think two categories perhaps that are truth. Uh, just uh, I would rather have your close attention and thought process here than have you turning to all these verses. But in some areas, God's word is direct. Let's consider the first command God ever gave to man. Genesis two verse sixteen and seventeen says this and the lord god commanded man and woman well she wasn't made yet so excuse me there but it did apply to her and the lord god commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die you didn't need a whole lot of interpretation that you can eat of all these trees they're there for you except this one don't eat of it if you eat of it, you're going to die, right? Didn't take a theologian to write a message on that one to come up with obedience. It was clear. And so we, I would call that uh, direct. Now, in some of the others, it gives us what I'm going to call principles. So we have direct, 
things. And then we also have principles. And I'll uh, give you an illustration here in a minute. So another area is it gives us principles that we are to follow. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Okay, so when he says be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, I do not personally think Paul was very concerned about the church in Corinth having men, women, whatever, get yoked up with another man or woman in, in an actual ox yoke and walking around. I don't know that he was really expecting that. But you think he was? I doubt that was a whole lot bigger problem than it is now. He was using an illustration, of course. He didn't mean that don't go, you know, don't get tied in with somebody. That might be a wise thing. Uh, but it's probably not something most of us will ever be tempted to do. But what we might be tempted to do is form business partnerships or form other relationships that are detrimental to our spiritual life. So he's warning, don't tie yourself, not in a physical way, but an emotional or in a business way, in, in a way that it makes it difficult for you to serve God. You understand? That's principle, right? So he's giving us a principle to follow. And so we have to, if I was to preach a message of not being unequally yoked and I stood up here and I found out 10 different ways for you not to get physically tied up with a non-Christian, you'd say, well, that was a foolish message, right? Because, again, I don't think it's something you all were struggling with. But if I would talk about not getting tied into business or emotional relationships in a wrong way and all that, then it would be very legit based on the principle. So going on, and maybe we should have a message on all these, but today I want to tie it more focus on the conviction part. Can you give me a book, chapter, and verse for why you don't smoke? Tobacco or marijuana or whatever else you could come up with. Or vape. Anyone? Is it mentioned? I think one verse our guidelines use where it says we don't do that is that our body is a temple of God, right? But it nowhere tells you that you shouldn't stick a cigarette in your lips. I mean, as such words. So there again, we're doing principles, right? We're trying to follow what we understand God wants, not based on that he actually mentioned this, but that it makes total sense that he wouldn't want us to do this. What about watching movies for entertainment? Eh, at least maybe some of us be a little bit more inclined to do that, huh? I don't know. Hopefully not. But why don't we? I think part of it comes back to this unequal yoke, doesn't it? I don't think I'm going to be entertained with the world and stay separate from them for one thing. And I'm not talking about something that teaches me how to do something here. Uh, and I know there's probably a gray area, but I'm talking just sheer entertainment. You know, don't go there. It's uh, principles, and maybe that's another thing. Like I said, Jason, have a message on that. I'll hand them out for free and give George another one here in a minute. Um, so, why don't you expect me to be out fishing a bass tournament this morning? Uh, interestingly enough, a lot of bass fishing tournaments are uh, Sunday morning, uh, some of them. And some of those fellows make actually quite a bit more money than I do. And in looking at their weight, I think there's occasionally days I could almost keep up with them. So, why, don't, why shouldn't I be doing that? Again, um, probably most of you aren't tempted to do that, so I don't have to give you all the principles for that, but I think there's principles in God's word for that as well. Do we find any of this in the Bible? Yes, we do, in principle, even though not in necessarily spelled out. Okay, some of you are getting sleepy on me. I need you to stay with me. Stand up, everybody. I don't want to embarrass nobody. Okay, so truth and truth principles, when they are believed and accepted, lead to, can you tell me? So if I, if I believe in truth, especially thinking of God's word, 
and I'm understanding there's some direct commands, there's some principles, if I accept those as truth, what happens? Exactly. I was going to give you one more step. Is you come up with an application. As you accept truth into your life, you see that that truth has commands, that it has things that it requires of you, that in turn will lead to application. And as you begin applying things to your life, truth to your life, you should form, and I'm not going to put an arrow, but you should form somewhere in this process, you're going to form this thing of convictions. A belief in truth and truth's principle resulting in an application is of conviction. If I didn't have conviction that truth needs lived out, I wouldn't do anything about it, would I? I just keep doing my thing. And so therefore, I need a conviction. I need to follow that process and end up with a conviction. A conviction is a believed truth. Now, that sounds foolish, doesn't it? But I'll tell you why I said that here in a little bit. A conviction is a believed truth by which our conscience is programmed, thus becoming part of who we are and in dictating the actions that are acceptable and actions that are not acceptable. If you turn in your Bibles, we won't do this right now, but if you turn to John chapter 8, verse 9, well, actually, whole chapter 8 to the beginning, we have uh, the woman caught in adultery brought by the rest of the people, and there's before Christ, and they're saying she should be stoned, and, you know, they're trying to get him in a trap, and he's there writing on the ground. And then he finally says, I think it's verse uh, 7 or 8, he says, Who, uh, whosoever is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Then he bent back down and wrote. Now, of course, we can only speculate what he wrote because the Bible don't, doesn't tell us. At the same time, whether it was the writing, whether it was just their own heart working, uh, eight verse, yeah, chapter 8, verse 9, then it tells us that each one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, they were convicted by their own conscience. So truth spoke to them, and they said, you know what? I'm not the kind of person that can throw that stone. I'm not going to say they had all been adulterers. Maybe they had, maybe they hadn't. Probably not. But they all were convicted of sin in their own life. They all had conviction, not in the sense I'm talking of, but that they were wrong. And it was because they hadn't really... Anyway, I want to tie the conscience in, but it was the, this process of conscience and conviction. Now, if we go to Romans 2, and I should really take time to read that whole thing, but I don't have it, so we'll just talk about it. In Romans 2... It talks about our conscience also bearing witness. And then he also goes further and he says it has accusing or else excusing thoughts. And if you have any conscience, you know what that's like, right? Sometimes it accuses you and sometimes it excuses you. In fact, one of the last, the last message I had out in California was on the conscience. I shared it here some years ago, so some of you may not know what I'm talking about. But you know, our conscience... Don't ever go against it, but it is largely programmed in a lot of ways. And sometimes we have accusing thoughts or excusing thoughts when we shouldn't. Okay, you can be seated. Let's see if you can stay awake. Um, and here I said, I talked about believed truth a minute ago. Here's where we as humans make this thing really strange. Do I need to believe truth to make it true? Did Columbus believing that the world was round make the world round? Oh, of course not. <laughs> That's, yet, 
let's see if I can get you clearly through this one. Truth is truth regardless of what we believe. Yet truth, when it is believed, leads to action, right? Just like Columbus. Okay, let's say somebody came. All of a sudden that door, you'd hear the door just being wrenched open in the back and somebody just panting and puffing would run up here beside me and say, hey, your, your schoolhouse is on fire over here. Uh, you know, if you believed that person, you probably wouldn't just stay sitting there. Uh, pretty soon I'd be preaching to an empty benches if I didn't believe them, right? Y'all would go do something. You'd go see if you could put the fire out or if it's too bad, if you could rescue some things or make sure the fire department's been called. It leads to action. And uh, that's how the rest of life is. It leads to action. And one thing I want to caution in this thing of convictions, applications, I'll probably almost repeat myself because I have a very strong desire to be clear here. But when we're talking about other people and their convictions or their applications, I think we need to be careful. I don't think the focus or our conversation should really be do they do just like we do. But what I th if we discuss others at all, our focus should be more on that do they apply truth. Right? Are they actively applying truth in their life? Because to me, just take Lancaster Conference for instance, you can find all sorts of groups that profess all sorts of things on paper, but the reality is they may or may not believe it in actuality. So what I want to see, rather than if, if, if I was to go church shopping or whatever I should call it, you know, yes, it's sort of nice to know what these people say they believe and say they live up to. At the same time, that means very little unless I see their lives actually back this thing up. Otherwise, it's just words, right? And words on paper are pretty cheap this day and age. So it's do they actually back it up? So back to the state of convictions. I'm going to talk plain. I told you, I friend I hurt my own toes and I... Sorry for not stopping there. But I feel that convictions and people with convictions have got bad, I wasn't sure what I should use, but a bad representation or a bad name because of some misunderstandings and misnaming that we have going on when we talk about convictions. First of all, let's separate between stubbornness and convictions, between a critical spirit and principled living, between a desire for control and wholehearted living for God. You know, God gets blamed for awful much, doesn't he? Have you ever wondered how he must feel when I have heard people tell, God told me to do? I mean, it's ridiculous if you really get out there. And even in our churches, sometimes it's sort of scary. And I'll just be honest, I, even in a message, I really think this was the message God wanted me to share this morning. But I'm going to be honest, just on myself, I'm not going to 100% say it was, Right? I'm going to let you, God, decide that and let him make the best out of it. But, um, yeah, let's be careful about saying God told me. Be very careful. I'm not saying he never does, but I'm almost hesitant to use that term before because of how it gets abused. God has been accused of, God told me, has defended much stubbornness. And, you know, stubbornness, whatever the reason, does not have God's blessing. How about if I'm feeling stubborn that I remember that I should have a conviction to love my brother? Uh, let's be cause a little problem to my stubborn streak, wouldn't it? Even if it's wanting to preach. Uh, not that I wanted to preach, but I want to take my turn. Um, about a critical spirit. Again, I think many things are shared as a concern. And I'm going to be clear with you. I have concerns, and I want to be part of a church that has brothers and sisters with concerns. 
But remember, a critical spirit, whatever its focus, is not the work of God. Again, don't say this is God when you have a heart issue going on. You know, a desire for control, that's nothing any of us would own up to having, but it's probably something all of us have in one shape or form, or have had. A desire for control, whatever the way it expresses itself, friends, is wrong. Don't blame God for it. Do not confuse any or all of these with a person of conviction. One of the hallmarks or the defining differences between the negative things I was just talking about and the person, a person of conviction, a person of real conviction, is that one is primarily telling others what they should do. And B, while the person of real conviction is living out truth in his own life. Go to Romans chapter 2 again. Like I said, I should have really just dissected that chapter. But in 2.17, or yeah, the last there. Well, why don't I just read it? I have my Bible open. Behold thou, behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law and makest thy boast of God and knowest his will and approvest the things that are more excellent and in being instructed of the law. Anyways, he goes on. But I want to skip down to verse 21 in Romans 2. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Here's the human tendency is to see that convictions are good. And so rather than just asking God to help me, and yes, help you as a friend, but not in a controlling way, not in a critical way, I, I can be... I think we often take this thing of conviction and sort of project it out at other people rather than having God work it in our heart and letting it flow through us and blessing other people. It does have an effect on other people, but be careful. Um, I love Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. I'll just read the verse quickly because I think it makes the point very well. Joshua talking to Israel, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord... Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which the fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites, the people around you, in whose land ye dwell. But then he goes on and he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, if you would read all of Joshua chapter 24, Joshua was very much encouraging Israel to share his conviction, right? Please do. At the same time, to a degree, his personal conviction, his personal testimony came down to that last phrase. I really encourage you to do this. I want to inspire you to do this. I'm here to help you to do this. But at the end of the day, it's my decision that matters for me and my house. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So, taking that one step further, I told you I'm going to get painful on some of these things. So before I do that, and in case I would make possibly some youth especially, feel like I'm picking on them. I'm going to tell you this. Uh, let's see. Am I not finding it here? Um, in the few years of life that I've lived, parents, I'm going to tell you something. I would generally say youth, generally, say that youth are a reflection of what parents' actual convictions are. If I have a slight preference for one thing or another, it's pretty easy to do it myself, right? But when, it's, when I'm having to tell somebody else whether they should or should not do stuff, it becomes pretty clear to me how much effort I have invested in this actually, doesn't it? And I think that's where some of us fall pretty bad, is I've seen people that just seeing them, I would have 
appreciated them quite a bit, but you saw what is happening on their families, and it's like, and I, okay, I'm not saying to be a controlling parent. That's not what I'm saying. But I love what Larry Schwalter said some years ago in a message I was listening to. He said, your children know what's really important to you. He said, even if you have that office door closed, they know what you're doing. And it's not that they're peeking in the window. Uh, if it's my house, they might be. And that's fine. I don't have nothing to hide. But uh, I don't know whether they do or don't, honestly. But they know what's important to me. And I think sometimes we as parents like to play games. And the other thing I've seen parents do. So if any of these things sound directed at youth, youth, take up, pay attention, think about it, be willing to consider it. But even more parents, are you really serious about what you claim you're serious about? I challenge you on that. Generally, your children are going to live out what's, what you really believe. I don't mean that in a harsh way, but it, it, it definitely shows probably more clearly. Okay, so I'll let that for now. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Again, just a challenge to me because I know it is so ever so much harder to decide I will just do this or that for myself to yet give direction to a wife to children, it gets hard, really hard, because I don't want to be controlling. At the same time, I do want to be concerned. I want to be a person of conviction. Okay, if truth and principles of truth are important to me, I will willingly make application and live them out. An unapplied truth and or truth principle is lost to the person not applying it. Uh, just take the headship bailing, for instance. We could have ever so many people that say they want to well, that wasn't the best, but they would say they want, if you don't really live it out, you, you to some degree have lost that principle. Now, unfortunately, just putting a headship veiling on ladies, as you very well know, doesn't automatically bring submission and what it's supposed to symbolize. So there again, human beings have to work all the time, don't they? But uh, truth, if I can say a truth or a principle without an application is sort of like a truck without wheels. You know, we could go to, Jonas or Marcus's shop and as they rotate tires I don't know it seems most at least the ones I've watched a lot of times there's a point where the tires are completely off the truck and let's just say they stopped there and they said well your truck runs fine looks good I mean everything's more or less here could you go anywhere with it I doubt you could even get out the door it's because it needs application it needs to be able to apply its power to apply its thing and so uh, uh, truth or principles without an application is very like a truck without wheels Okay, now some other questions for you is, do you do what you do because of others or because of who you are in Christ? Do you do what you do because of others or because of who you are in Christ? Here's a question I wanted to ask you. Let's say uh, in 20, yeah, it was 2020, in, ooh, I'm getting almost mixed up. I think it was towards the end of February, yes. And into March, Debbie and I, Kendra and Kyla had flown to York and sort of brought this illustration to me because COVID was starting. We didn't know what we were up for and I was getting scared I would get stuck over there away from my other girls and like what in the world would happen. So let's say that in 2020 you would have been traveling and for some peculiar reason, now I know most people got to got back, come back, they just had to quarantine and some stuff. But let's say you would have ended up the other side of the world. I was trying to figure out where that would be. So I'm going to say Sydney, Australia, just to give you a place where you can still sort of talk English. And uh, so let's say you're in Sydney, Australia, and you get stuck there for two years by yourself. 
I'm not even talking family now. You're traveling, you got stuck, maybe you can call, but you're really just, just there on your own for two years. No accountability, no Christians that you know of. What kind of person would you be at the end of those two years? What would you have done during those two years? I'll come back to that. So do you do what you do because of others or because of who you are in Christ? Um, I guess some of you might have to bear with me. Somehow I get, when I think about things, I get the funniest sermon illustrations sometimes, I'm told, so I, excuse me. But I'm going to talk about Mr. Harriet just a little bit. Remember him? And I don't know if you remember the farmer. I can't remember his name, and I didn't take time to look it up. But the, the farmer whose cow got hit by lightning. Any of you that have read the story probably going to be with me now. But there was this farmer, and the sad thing was this, this farmer was actually a professing Christian, I guess. At least it said something at one point, I think, about him being a deacon in the Methodist church. So this farmer called the vet because his cow had been struck by lightning. That's what he said. Well, the vet came out. He could find absolutely no evidence of lightning strike. So he got the, the fellow that bought dead cows and turned them into dog food to come pick it up and cut it open so they could look in it. And... Uh, I'm not going to go through that whole story, but as they were looking at this thing at one point, the farmer was like, could you just say that lightning struck it? So this was a Christian, and as far as I know, James Harriet never really made a Christian profession, talking to a non-Christian vet, and he says, uh, could you just say that it was lightning that hit it? And James sort of looked at him, and he's like, what, you mean even though I, didn't, I, I, I don't think it did? And he's like, well, anyhow, what does it matter? Who would know? He's, uh, I'm just putting some of these in my own words. Basically, the thought was, the insurance company can spare the money better than I can. And I really like James's response. Christian or not, he hit it good. He said, sir, whatever, he said, what would bother me is that I would know about it. What would bother me is that I would know about it. I'm going to make sort of a hard statement here. But I think James would have made a better Christian than some people sitting in Christian churches with that kind of thing. The problem is I would know about it. Friends, I don't mean to be critical or anything. I just talked about that. But I really wonder if far too many of us are doing what we do because of others. And I don't want to exclude others. The church is a blessing. But the primary reason why I live my life the way I do should not be because of other people. It should be because of Christ in me. And I am afraid we perhaps do a good job of fooling ourselves. We think we have convictions and we can even seem outraged when somebody doesn't follow what we would say is pretty crucial. But this outrage, as I've studied it, as I've observed it, I have a real suspicion that that outrage is generally more directed at being perceived by others by, about caring about this than that I necessarily have such a deep care myself. Sometimes. That's pretty strong. But go check out Romans 2. He lays it out probably stronger than I do. Because so many times we're not so far removed from the issue. Um, again, I have seen people that would have felt they were very strong in their convictions within a relatively short time, completely, can I say, stand on their head, reverse direction. And it happened because things didn't suit them anymore. They weren't getting along or there was a fight or something. I tell you, if you have real convictions, they don't just blow out the window. We were driving out there in California and I had sort of got my 
youngest daughter this little sticker and she had one in her window open. Well, don't you know she sticks that sticker out the window? And the last I see of the stickers, my mirror is whoosh. Well, the reason I looked in my mirror is I heard this terrible yell. Uh, but don't, you know, if you value your convictions, you're not going to hold them out the window. You're going to hold them in both hands, and they're going to be part of you. Another thing that seems a little strange just on the surface is we, have, we seem to have quite a few people in our churches these days who are classifying themselves as sensitive people, but who are not overly burdened with convictions. And I've wondered, how in the world can this be? How can you be sensitive, but not really that much a person of conviction? I'm going to ask a question to maybe answer that. Has this come through a focus on feelings rather than a focus on truth? I wonder if it hasn't. When we start focusing on our feelings, we feel guilty, but we really don't want to do anything about it. We're not really focused on truth. When I focus on truth, I'm willing to live it out, even if it's not fun. So if you find yourself feeling sensitive, maybe immerse yourself in truth. I really like what Brian shared there about, yeah, how the Bible cleanses us. That's great. Because what I've seen in some of these very people claiming to be sensitive, they often blame truth for their sensitivity. And in that process, they actually put themselves in conflict with the solution to their issue. Conviction or a lack of conviction is most often evident when we hold, excuse, let me back up. Conviction or a lack of conviction is often most evident in the way we work with lesser things. And what I mean by lesser things, I'm not trying to minimize them. But we would all agree, I think, that to some degree, degree the shirt I wear, the pants, the dress, or... I don't know, I was going to, this actually started this message, another one that branched off of the music thing. Um, that, you know, we can listen to at least some music that may not be that great. And, to some, and we might call those lesser things, yet I really think most of us start our progress away from conviction in lesser things, if you want to call it that. Uh, let me give you an illustration. It's sort of, this is not in the church thing. But uh, one thing I found interesting, I won't name names, I'm not trying to be political at all, but there was a president some years ago that he would not go to the president's office called the Oval Office without a suit and tie on. Because his words were that he respects that office so highly and it's bigger than what he is and he just wants to always be reminding himself by the way he dresses that he has a lot of influence. And I don't know, I'm sure that that person was not a perfect president, but I... I would say I, in history, even his enemies, I think, respect him a bit more than the one before or after. And some of it had to do with this. Does it seem like a very small thing to make sure you have a suit and tie to go into the Oval Office? Probably. Inconvenient? Absolutely. What if you wanted a pen you left on the desk? Yet at the same time, I would suggest to you that that president made actually a better leader for this country because of that. Okay, going on. I'm not asking or even suggesting that you agree with me 100% on everything. All I'm asking is that you think seriously and be deliberately consistent and be a person of conviction. I personally wonder if it's not somewhat healthier to have some differences. Because guess what? If you all say you all agree with me 100% on everything, 
I don't think it's true, number one. I'd rather have you honest uh, than nice, that nice. Uh, and number two is even if we did, who would challenge us? We need to challenge each other. So I'm okay with disagreeing. As I was trying to tell, I was trying to explain this thing of convictions and stuff in some other areas to somebody I lived with recently. And, you know, it struck me, and I think I told them, it's not so much that people do just as I think or just as I practice, but that they're willing to draw a line and stick with a line. Because, friends, today we live in a world that doesn't hardly, they hardly know what lines are. They've got absolutely confused and unmoored and really ridiculous and crazy. And with God's word, like Brian was saying, it's my anchor. I know where I can be, right? If I'm unmoored, I've got issues there, not somewhere else. So it's about drawing lines. Sure, I want to appreciate. I want to be part of a church, and I think I do for the most part here. I want to appreciate our guidelines and support them. At the same time, remember, there's Christians that do some of these things a bit different, and that's just great. While all truth, listen closely, while all truth and truth principles should be for all people of all times and in all places, application will vary somewhat by person, and place and time due to differing needs, differing times in differing situations, right? That probably didn't, wouldn't have made sense for, excuse me, I don't know, should I ch say the church in Corinthians to dress exactly like if you would have walked, had that, if we could put you in a time machine and put you back to Corinth. Do you think you walked in, they dressed just like we did? I doubt it. Were they Christians? Absolutely. And it might be that a church in India would very well not follow our dress pattern. Maybe they'd be ahead of us in some things. Let them practice what they need to there. Therefore, moving on with my thought here, convictions based on truth will be similar in that they support the same principle, the same truth. But they will be different, perhaps, in the way they're lived out. They will have some variation. There's a good and healthy process Excuse me. This is a good and healthy process if we maintain focus on truth and have a committed desire to live it out. It is not that I think we all need to agree exactly, but I think we need to agree that these issues are important. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. What does this sound like? Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, friends, this evening, it's awful easy to collect weight. It is. And if we... Yeah, I don't guess, thankfully, again, we don't get involved. But if you go to a track meet where runners are really running a competition, you saw a fellow collecting weights, you would say, what an idiot. But how often do we see Christians collecting weights? They say, oh, it's not that bad. But they hinders you, friends. We lose focus so easy. You know, it, all these things take effort or they will happen to the negative. Another thing I want to just remind you of myself is there's just no room for defensiveness in the Christian life, is it? If in what I say in some of the practical things I'm going to touch on here in a minute, I get defensive or you get defensive, you know what it indicates? It indicates it's something that I probably should be thinking about and don't want to. So I got you boxed in now, right? <laughs> I don't mean it that way. But be serious about it. Don't get defensive. It's not worth it. If you have a problem with what I say, let's talk about it. 
If what we are doing is done for the right motives and reasons, questions and discussions will be welcomed. If there's self and inconsistency in what we do, we likely will try to avoid and think about something else. I have to think of a young man, give you an illustration here again of what I really want you to get out of the rest of this. Is that, hold it, I'm sorry. Um, I was talking to a young man one time and he had uh, done some things that didn't seem very necessary. And um, I told him, I said, I talked to him about, about the thing. I'm not going to mention what it was. And he said, well, if you want me, I'll change it. Uh, uh, if it helps you feel better, I don't exactly know how. And that was very nice of him, gracious. But you know, he actually missed the point of what I wanted. I didn't want him to change those things because of me. I can love him. I can live with him the way it is. But what I wanted him to do is to consider the issues, to seek God, have his heart in tune with God, his desire for him, not mine. I don't want to be your conscience. I don't want to be the one propping up your convictions. You may think of another young lady I taught in Bible school, and we do talk about courtship and how it ought to be done. And uh, some years later, a uh, year or two later, we were traveling and we met. She had big... She was in courtship with a young man, and they were very evidently not following the courtship practices that we had discussed and promoted as good. And what was sort of sad about it is she was terribly self-conscious around us about it, and yet she was still doing it. You know what? I didn't, because I didn't think it would help anything. But if what I'm saying isn't true, if you haven't accepted it into your heart, if you haven't built convictions on it, don't worry about it. Worrying about me is no good. I want you to worry about God and what God thinks. I'm sure I have absolutely no idea how the clock got to where it is. Maybe I should just prove I know how to quit and let the practical things wait. Is that what I should do? <laughs> I don't know. It's sort of hard to dismiss half of you. Um, why don't you close your eyes? Let's do something real quick. Shall I keep going a bit? Okay, who would just rather see if Joe knows how to shut up? Okay, well, we'll give it a little bit here yet. Bear with me, and I apologize. Um, if you want to leave, go ahead. Don't, don't waste your lunch listening to me. Um, but I just briefly jotted down some areas I think we'll be, we may be slipping in conviction. And again, I say this for you to think about, not that I am here the authority or that I think I've got this all together. But perhaps I wonder if we're slipping in a sensitivity to do what I've promised to support and uphold in the church. Back to Lancaster Conference. I'm so thankful we're not at all where they are. But friends, they didn't get to where they were in a day. It started small. How conscientious am I to support the church guidelines, even probably especially the ones that don't make that much sense to me? How much can I do what I want to do and still be an honest person? And I don't mean to direct this at anyone. I know we got council meeting coming up, and so I won't necessarily talk about it here, but I've been involved in some other places too where it's pretty evident some people have struggles, yet council meeting comes around, whether it's publicly or in the side room, they come and they basically make it sound like everything's good, and yet, and then they also say things like they wanna be open to the church and support the church, yet their life doesn't really look like it, friends. Is that honest? Is that a conviction built on honesty? What about respect? 
Am I really respecting the church if I do what I think I can get away with? And I really appreciate the effort we've made as a church to actually say what we want to do, but it still lets some work for us to do as people, individuals. What are my convictions? Do I have convictions about absolute honesty? Do I have convictions about respecting the church brotherhood, the church guidelines? Uh, modesty was another one. And here I want to be careful. It's not that I'm here to call anybody immodest. But I think we have to have conversations. Again, we don't end up immodest in a day. And one thing that really bothers me while I'm touching on this is when I've heard different brothers and sisters, for that matter, say when they had a concern, one of the first things we tell them to do here, which I think is right, is go talk to the person. And I've had one or two people tell me, no, we can't never do that because we just get accused of having a dirty mind, friends. That's terrible. If that's where we actually are, we've got serious work. I'm not saying that a wrong mind can't lead to a critical spirit in some of those things, but don't accuse somebody that approaches you of that. Or we're, we'll be on, get on a ship that we don't want to be on real quick. Okay, and just a couple. I'm going to talk to the guys for a bit here because I feel too often when they get a pass maybe on this. But, you know, just because the shirt or pants pass church guidelines doesn't say they're a good thing for me to wear necessarily. Just because someone else has some like it doesn't say I should have some. Put some thought into your wardrobe. Just because someone else unbuttons their shirt further than they really need to doesn't make it all right for you to do it. Be a leader. And I, I guess if I really would challenge Mennonite men on one area, it's this leader of modesty and dress. We put a lot of weight on our women. And we can make, and I don't necessarily disagree, that yes, there is some differences in the way God has built us and made us and possibly some reasons for that. But I still think at the end of the day, I need to be leading my home in these areas or it's becoming a joke. And let's not just focus it on the other side of the house. And ladies, one thing I really struggle with in some of the circles we fellowship with, let me just say it this way. Just because you follow a, tradi a traditional pattern doesn't make it modest. I'm not saying we need to change our pattern. That's not what I'm pushing for. But don't fool yourself. Sometimes I think we get the idea because, well, I do a good job in the pattern, then the rest is good. No, you still got to be serious about it. You know, just because someone else made their sleeves this way or their neckline that way doesn't make a good idea for you. Are you sensitive to God? and to what the church is aiming for, are you sensitive to yourself and your desires? Uh, moving on, do we support what the church seeks to promote in dress, probably especially in the areas we may feel differently? And a couple things I wanted to mention here. I think some of this has happened here at the same time I'm not saying it for that. It's a human problem. But you know, I guess personally, if I'm going out in public, I don't think like I, I think it's fine to wear some things inside my house or possibly when I'm in, involved in a private activity somewhere, let's say swimming or something like that. But if I'm stopping at a gas station and I respect the church, I really don't think I'll go into the gas station with a t-shirt on. I just don't think so. It's not saying that I feel like t-shirts are wicked, I don't. At the same time, I've committed to, to not wearing them in public life and I can live with that. If that t-shirt is so super important, just carry another shirt with you and put it on. Uh, it's not that hard. Uh, really, are you sensitive or are we doing what we want to do? How about when we pose for photos? Okay, I understand sometimes we have good family times and maybe we're doing slip and slides or something. And, you know, I enjoy a foolish time as good as anyone. So I'm not saying, and you can't necessarily keep somebody from snapping a photo of you when you're doing something like that. And I'm not, I don't want to be legalistic. At the same time, if you're posing for a photo, especially in this day and age, you don't have no idea where that photo will go, do you? 
are you posing in a way that's supportive of what we want to project or be? Another one I guess I would just, I've noticed, and I don't, haven't noticed this recently here, so I guess I'm freer to say it, but as these people, it's really boggled my mind what some people use as their profile photos on WhatsApp and that type of thing. I'm like, where is your mind? Why would you put a picture of yourself on a public place and then say, then somebody would come to our church and want to dress like that and we tell them, oh no, you can't do that. Is that, is that really convicted conviction, a life of conviction? Uh, another couple that just I got to mention here is, uh, again, I understand your swimming or other activities. It's, it's not that I feel if you take your headship veiling off, ladies, to enjoy activity or that you should wear one, you take a shower. Of course, there's times it has to come off. I get that. But maybe be sensitive and don't pose. I mean, again, maybe you can't keep somebody else. Maybe you have to be careful about what cameras are around. But again, I've seen, actually seen some ladies posing without a headship veiling, and yet they would probably want me to believe that they have a conviction for it. You really think I'm supposed to believe that? I don't think I do. I'm sorry. You know, how about visiting churches, places that do differently or allow more than what we do? Now, I'm sort of one for blending as much as and still supporting my own church. And I totally understand. If you visit Debbie, or Winford and Debbie in Kenya, and you don't wear socks to church, that is totally fine. Wear your sandals and socks. It's, it's, I know not one person here has an issue with that, right? At the same time, if I travel five or six hours down the road and uh, I go dress differently than what I would be expected to come to church Sunday morning, how respectful is that to my congregation, really? Think about it. Again, I'm not trying to be legalistic or hard-nosed. I want you to think about these things. And another thing I've noticed is perhaps weddings. I've noticed even people coming to Bible school program that absolutely don't see it as a worship service for some odd reason. To me, a wedding service is a worship service, and I don't care what your role is there, dress up like it. If your dress clothes are that uncomfortable, come borrow some from me and Debbie. I hope they'll fit, but uh, you know what I mean? And okay, I understand, not necessarily the shoes I wear Sunday morning when I'm at Bible school, wearing them all day long sort of gets hard on that concrete. So I'm, stewardship was another thing on my list here. I'm all for good stewardship. At the same time, the way we spend money, I would like to suggest to you that if your job, if your feet, whatever, buy something that's suitable for what you're doing then if you do any amount of it. And again, it makes a big difference to me if you're flying somewhere and your luggage doesn't make it through and so you're getting by with what you have. That's a huge difference than if you planned to do it this way. Do you understand what I'm saying? I guess I'm just gonna be blunt with you. I think it's showing your heart more than what you like. Especially when it's just a couple hours drive and it really was no, it was just what I wanted. Another one I want to touch on briefly is in respect of the Lord's Day. Now, it's interesting. I have had two brothers challenge me on this recently, and God bless you. I, I want to accept it. I did ask some counsel on it. So evidently, we're going to have some differences, and that's great. Um, I'll tell you some things I am concerned about, and I pro evidently don't take it far enough, and so I want to grow in that. But traveling Sunday morning, we have done it, and uh, I did not. I know there's possibly some traveling today. I'm not exactly sure what the arrangements are, so if they anyway listen to this, I'm not talking about them. I had these notes long before I knew they were going anywhere. 
But we have traveled a couple Sunday mornings, but so far God has always given us enough time to stop for a message somewhere at least. And to me, it's a respect issue. Again, I'm not saying you have to, but if Sunday morning is a convenient time for you to travel, I've never missed a Sunday morning message, at least, that I know of for travel. Um, and I don't, I don't want to, uh, like I said. And if somebody needs to, funerals, I know we're not always in control and some things may be different, but I really don't know if it's necessary. Do we really, are we that rushed that we don't have time to worship once a week? And I know probably what I was challenged on was more evening services. Um, that's a big subject, I won't, but I, I do want to be sensitive about that, even though perhaps there's different feelings there as well. What about Flying Sunday? And maybe immediately on that one, I should put the one about going out to eat Sunday. Um, I have flown once Sunday, and I did it because of a funeral in Florida and some plans that others had for the next day that I didn't feel like I could really ask them to change. So I've done it, but I, I didn't feel good, friends. I felt like I went against something I shouldn't have. And so I, barring God making me do it, <laughs> basically no other way. I'm not going to make a hard thing, but I really don't want to because is it consistent for me to pay somebody else to work on Sunday in a job that I would not have? That's my question. And going out to eat would be the same thing. If any of you here in the church were to go get a job at a restaurant and be consistently out cooking meals Sunday, I think we'd talk to you about it. So how can I, in good conscience, with good conviction, go do benefit from somebody else following something I would say you shouldn't do, basically? And that's pr probably the biggest thing on flying, too. Another one, real quick, is traveling for business. And this gets really complicated. Um, but do I deliberately leave because it's sort of nice this, I want to get a start early Monday morning so I travel Sunday so that I can start my job early Monday morning. For myself, I've tried to draw the line on not traveling for Sunday. Now, I do face a bit of a conundrum and you can come tell me what I should do. We bought a pickup for the business down in Florida and it didn't work out to come the way it was supposed to so I'm thinking of going down there next Sunday and preaching for them and if my girls are to be in school Monday morning, I have to drive it home Sunday afternoon so am I taking a business trip on Sunday? I can't quite decide. Uh, so. Like I said, I'm not trying to be legalistic, but I'm trying to be honest with how this hits me too. Um, another one that I've been convicted on, and maybe you think I take it too far, I don't know, but just simply out of respect for the Lord's Day, do, you, do I go online and browse prices? I don't necessarily know that I have a problem with some research if it's not really business related, uh, but uh, if or then, but then I, I sort of had a problem with people going online and looking at prices, just a personal conviction. But then I found myself picking up a catalog and doing the same thing. And I was like, well, Joe, this isn't consistent at all. So I've, I try to keep, let my catalogs for Monday morning or Saturday evening or some other time. That's just me. What do you think? Uh, I'll let that up to you. One thing I do want to say back on the business is I have in the business we're involved in, we occasionally have people that are desperate to close something because they... Um, get stuck open or whatever when they probably shouldn't be open. We have basically decided to help them close, but we don't do anything else. I have one company that really wants us to work on Sunday. I just told them it's not something we do. If it's just making sure that your shop is closed up, I'll drive out and do it, but I'm not going beyond that. And that's kept it pretty minimal, really. What about technology? I don't have time to get deep on these, but it's not a toy, friends. It's a tool. And our stand as a church, and I think even as a Christian, we should use it like that. Whether it's entertainment, movies, just browsing, whatever it would be, it's, it's, 
Again, that's one thing to watch a video that shows you how to put your door latch together on your vehicle or something. It's quite another just to go for the entertainment factor of it. And what you really are in your heart is going to show up probably when you're alone. Uh, even news, you can so quickly overdo that. Music. Well, I guess I'm going to let the main music subject for later, but I've almost talking to some people, not necessarily from here, but they would say, oh, I don't have CDs of this or whatever, yet they listen to the things in streaming. Does the way you access your music really make any difference in listening to it? I mean, we all know it doesn't. Let's not be stupid here. Be consistent. Involvement in politics, uh, perhaps Brian touched on that a little bit. You know, it's so easy just to get start discussing. The next thing I know, I was talking with someone about the auto strike that's going on. And anyway, it's so easy. Before you almost know it, you're almost in a political field. I don't know. It's hard just for me to be quiet. Jokes and humor. And y'all should know that I am not against humor one bit, right? Uh, y'all know me well enough for that. But, you know, the world around us seemingly, especially if you start getting into humor books or podcasts or whatever you're into, the world's humor seemingly has a terrible time keeping humor clean, right? There's very few humorous comedians, whatever you want to call them, that know how to stay clean. I'm not going to say there's none, but they're as rare as anything. So be careful. Can I really laugh at some of the things they say? And be consistent in my Christian life? What do I pass on? What do I enjoy? Stewardship of time and re uh, stewardship of the resource God gives me. Thinking especially of time and money. You know, we all have different backgrounds. We have different personalities, different interests. But do I have a conviction that the resources God has given me are a gift from him? And I will not, cannot use them selfishly and recklessly. And maybe the last one I was going to bring out is consistency in parenting. Especially in the things li li listed above. Parents, to a large degree, we form our children into what they are into at least about 18 or 20. I know they make their choices beginning before that. But are you consistent? If, if you have struggles in your home, I would really just kindly beg of you to go home on your knees and just ask God to show you what needs, what needs to change. If we drop you off in Sydney, Australia for two years without accountability, what would you do during that time? What would you be like at the end of that time? A person of conviction has their focus on God, on the truth of his word, on desire to live and please him. Can you have everything other Christians have? Can you do everything other Christians might? Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, by, live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's stand for prayer.